Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast from the co-founders of Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment program in Seattle. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist at Opal and a writer and artist. The Appetite is all about bringing the themes of our work with eating disorders to the greater community. We talk about issues of food, body image, sport, and mental health, often asking the question of how a person could ask for more out of these areas of their life. If you've listened before, you'll know that we discuss radically open dialectical behavioral therapy quite a bit on the podcast, and that you'll hear us refer to it as RO or RODBT most of the time. Opal co-founder Dr. Lexi Giblin is the RODBT-trained psychologist at Opal and has been implementing RODBT into Opal's programming. This is a new treatment modality that is targeted for disorders of over-control, where a person is struggling because they are too controlled, rigid, or emotionally inhibited. Anorexia nervosa, autism spectrum disorders, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, maladaptive perfectionism, and chronic depression and anxiety all fall in this category. The over-controlled temperament is the central concept at the heart of treatment for these disorders. You'll hear all of us refer to the temperament as OC, and its opposite, under control, as UC. Today, we are talking to Dr. Thomas Lynch and his wife and colleague, Erica Lynch. Tom is the creator of Radically Open Dialectical Behavioral Therapy and developed the treatment out of over 20 years of clinical experience and research. The recording of this interview happened the week of the release of his books an RODBT skills manual, and an in-depth training guide that includes theory of practice for clinicians. It's such a special treat to have Erica Lynch's voice in this conversation today, too, as she has played a central role in the development of RODBT. Lexi and I were in the studio in in Seattle together for this one, but Tom and Erica called in from rural France. So you'll notice the difference in sound quality on this episode because of this, but we hope you enjoy the conversation all the same. So um, tell us a little bit about the story of the creation of Radically Open Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. My understanding that this is like a a big moment in your work. So I want to get a bit of a background on what you were working on before this, how it all came about. Yeah. And before before you answer, Tom and Erica, I just I want to say how excited I am that we're on this podcast together, particularly at this moment, at this juncture in your career. Um, with the book having just been released, and it's just an exciting moment. Absolutely. I know. It's a huge moment. We're really excited about yeah, it. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. We are. It's, um, it's very exciting, and, and the, the book is bigger than I thought it would be. How about that? Both <laughs> books are. <laughs> wow. Um, there's a lot of work in there. Um, yeah, it started, gosh darn it, um, back at Duke University, I guess you might say, but Probably my original, you know, my work that I'd been doing prior to working on RO, RODBT, was um, really focused on um, couples and um, really interested in concepts of intimacy and and how um, couples managed intimacy in their relationships and conflict. And this was back um, about 23 years ago, 24 years ago or so. Um, I then got um, interested also in the concept of emotional expression. I thought it was an important mediator in depression and was related to some of the things I was studying with couples, Um, meaning how people 
not just, you know, might have suppressed or tried to inhibit thoughts or internal stuff, but how they um, <clears throat> might have inhibited or expressed or constrained uh, expression of emotion. And so that's kind of the things I was working on beforehand. And then um, at the same time, I, I'd gotten to know Marsha Linehan, and, and as I got to know her, started to do some research with her. And that's how it kind of started with me thinking about using some concepts from standard DBT, at least initially, in, in applying it toward um, chronic depression. And um, so that, that's kind of how it started and what I've been doing before. And then it, it just started uh, building over time. Um, you know, first got some NIMH funding um, for our first trial and found out right away that the people I was starting to select to treat that were chronically depressed were very different than the borderline patient that I'd been um, expected or, you know, kind of a, a dramatic, erratic, or under-controlled type of personality problem, which is what I'd been studying before at Duke University, where I was the director of the Duke Cognitive Behavioral Research and Treatment Program. Um, and um, so I was, right away, I recognized that I had to do something different with this population. Um, I remember my, one of my first patients that we started to apply uh, you know, start to experiment with, you know, and the, him, you know, he had, um, I think he was diagnosed with paranoia and paranoid personality disorder and obsessive compulsive personality disorder and that kind of thing. Been depressed for you know, 30 years or so and had lots of different treatments. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just sitting in the room and, and talking with him about the um, kind of the model that standard EVT had, which is an emotion dysregulation model. And I'm explaining to him that, you know, we've got it kind of figured out about the kinds of problems he has, that he's a dysregulated, he's impulsive, he's out of control. And he kind of just sits there and, and just stares at me, you know, very quietly and just says, okay, doc, that's what you think. And it's like with no expression, I realized right away there was something not quite right. And so it was really an iterative process for me of, of both, you know, going to the laboratory and looking at some of the paradigms I was interested in, because I ran a basic psychophysiology laboratory as well, and then going back to the clinic and trying to understand the patients. And it was, I'd say the patients are the ones that really got me uh, to begin to understand the idea of over-control and, and, and uh, start to, to, to move toward it, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I just like to jump in there. What's really interesting, those of you that know the skills, the match plus one skill comes from Tom's really early work with couples. Will you explain so the match plus one kind of, uh, skill again for those that don't know it? Yeah, uh, match plus one is one of the skills we teach in uh, it's, it's in the skill called flexible mind allows. And it's a skill that's about, it really teaches people, I guess you might say, how to make a friend, how to actually mm -hmm. establish a friendship with someone or establish a relationship. And the idea is that if you want to get to know someone, you first have to go up and talk to them, of course. And so you say, but the way to get to know a person is you have to reveal vulnerable information. You have to real, reveal something personal about yourself. And so that's, we teach the clients who often have no idea about how to do this. Other people seem to do it so easily, but our over-controlled clients often struggle greatly with figuring out this um, this issue of getting close to people. So you reveal something personal, and then you kind of watch what the other person does, and if they want to, you know, be engaged with the, you and or want to get to know you a little bit, they're going to reveal something personal back. It may not be high level. And then if you like them and you like what they said, then you'll reveal something personal back to them. And then you, if they, you know, match what your level of intimacy, and then they go up one, they go a little bit more personal, they're sending you a strong social signal of connection. They want to get to know you. And, you know, 
So you then do the same. You match their level of intimacy, and you go up one, and before you know it, you're married. <laughs> so easy. Is that what happened to you too? Yeah, it's so easy. Eric and Tom. <laughs> figured it out. <laughs> so let's back up just a little bit. Um, mostly, we have talked about the podcast, or we've talked about RO on the podcast quite a bit. Um, some people might be listening for the first time. Some people might have a base understanding of RO. But I'd love for you to just give kind of a, just a brief summary, because you've dropped some some key phrases with the um, emotional expression and building of intimacy and over control even. Can you just give us kind of a quick summary of RO? Wow, that's a, that's a good question, isn't it? A yeah. quick summary. Radical openness is based on a, the idea that um, first we start with the notion of what is mental health, you might say, or what is healthy living. We start with the notion that people that are doing okay in life, and you might think about people you know that you think are doing psychologically well right now for yourself. and. It's okay if it's you, by the way. Um, and, um, you know, you think about people like that, that you think are doing okay. We believe they kind of have three characteristics that uh, we think are important. And one is openness. They have a kind of open mind. They're willing to they get criticized or they get discrepant feedback or, or they encounter something novel. They don't immediately reject it. They have some capacity, some willingness to take in new information. Um and that's how they can learn. That's how any of us learn is, you know, because we don't know what we don't know. And then the other thing we think is important is flexibility. Um, so a person that's doing okay is emotionally healthy, is flexible, able to respond to changing circumstances. And, and the third thing we think is important, um, which we think our society is sometimes is forgetting, which is that um, <clears throat> our species survived really, you might say we thrived. In fact, we basically quickly took over the world, you might say, as a, a species back, um, you know, probably 200,000 years ago or so this started happening for our species. Um, we're a hyper-cooperative species. We're, we're able to engage in, um, and collaborate with each other in a way that's unprecedented. So one of the key things for our survival is that if we're not in the tribe, it, we're for our primordial ancestors, you know, living in really harsh climates, if you got ostracized from your tribe, you would die um, from predation or other kind of uh, hardship. And in fact, there's research showing that's exactly what happens with um, primates. So a primate that gets separated from their tribe in this you know, day and age will die within four or five days. So we really depend on other people a great deal. And so the third component for mental health, we think, or healthy living is, is social connectedness. But the good news is you don't need 150 Facebook friends to be socially connected. You only need one. You only need and one another friend. Facebook friend. Yeah, and probably not probably a Facebook not friend. Yeah. friend. Exactly. Yeah. Hasn't gone very well with kind friends. of <laughs> start, you know, you know what we're, is healthy about us, and then what it does is um, build from there and, and, and that type of thing. Mm. Um, yeah. Was that brief enough? Because I, I was just going to mention temperament. But oh, please I don't know do. whether we're going to go there later on. No, go ahead. Because um, I think that one of the things that makes um, RODBT different is that uh, we look at the temperament that uh, that the temperaments that are behind OC, and they're very very different to the temperaments that are behind UC. In fact, most of them are kind of the opposite. 
Um, and so the treatment is based around those temperaments, the deficits that occur because of those temperaments, and that's how the, the treatment kind of like builds. Mm-hmm. So when you when you were talking earlier about couples work, I actually found myself really fascinated because I had no idea that was at the root of, of your own work. Um, and that makes a lot of sense to me that you would even maybe even start understanding couples as functioning sometimes as inhibiting or not expressing enough of their own emotion and and therefore not being able to build intimacy. Um, when you, when you think about a population that's become, um, as you would probably say, they have too much of a good thing of the over-control. Um, beyond just the um, open expression, what are the other targets of RO? Well, um, we target things. Um, there's five OC themes that we think about. Um, we think about aloof and, and distant relationships. We think about inhibited expression, which we've talked about. We think about Rigid and rule-governed behavior. They, you know, they have rigid rules. That, you know, a person that's over-controlled is, you know, they're not the people that are causing riots and screaming and yelling at each other across the street. They're the people that are, you know, they they're kind of perfectionists. They see um, mistakes everywhere often, um, and, and including in themselves, um, you know, frequently. And um, they were very good at planning ahead and persisting and and those types of things. The problem is. You know, they're really good at, you know, you might say sitting quietly in a monastery or building a rocket, so they're very efficient in getting things done, but they often have, uh, they're kind of clueless often about how to form relationships. It's And uh, we think part of that has to do with their temperament, and part of it probably also has to do with culture and, and the environment they were raised in. So it's a combination of both those factors interacting together to produce a coping style that's kind of constrained, over-controlled, rule-governed, you know, and those types of things. So, for example, an over-controlled client, if you ask them, why'd you go to the party? They're not likely to say things like, oh, I wanted to go or I, I, I was excited. You know, they're likely to say, I thought it was the right thing to do. So they're often motivated, not necessarily by emotion per se, but by rules. And social obligation. And social obligation, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, we're probably going to talk about our temperaments later on. <laughs> but, like, social obligation, I, I lean towards OC, and social obligation is a big deal for me. And it, it's interesting to watch how... It's different in Tom. Maybe we can talk about that later on. We we should talk about it now. Yeah. <laughs> I think it would be interesting to kind of oh, get. Okay. Yeah, why not? Yeah. I think it would be um, interesting. And in addition, I'd love to hear how the how this treatment, um, how your treatment has impacted your own lives, personally. Okay. Mm, yeah. If you're yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it's funny that when when we go out as a couple, um, most people would might guess that I lean towards UC and Tom lean towards OC. <laughs> Why is that? Tom is in a like, kind of mood. And as like when we you know, like when we set up today, it was me that did the, the talking. Um and um I have this obligation to try to make people feel okay, to make them feel at ease, to look competent, to be friendly, to be sociable. And because of my rule-governed nature, then I, I do that all the time. So even if I'm exhausted, I'll make an effort to do it. I probably don't do it quite as well when I'm exhausted. But I make a real effort to do it. Whereas if Tom is tired or he's not interested, then he just doesn't make the effort. <laughs> In other words, my behavior is because I lead toward under control. And that's the point we're making here is what's nice is the data is very robust. It's been studied by people outside of our lab for sure. That in fact, that's how I really 
came across was running into someone like Leanna Clark and people like that that study these things. But you know, people, this, there's just two different types of personality that they've kind of discovered. And then one is under controlled, one's over controlled. And, and under controlled individuals, one of the things you might say, they their behavior is based on how their mood is in the moment more rather than the future consequences, that type of thing. And that's why, for example, standard EBT works so well for them as they need to learn how to, you know, get their act together to inhibit their emotions sometimes and to tolerate distress better and those kinds of things. But if you already have too much of inhibitory control and you're very excellent at stress tolerance, you know, what do you need? You need more inhibitory control and you need to learn how to regulate better. Well, no, we don't think so because their behavior are social. Um, the, the temperament they have, for example, of threat sensitivity makes them more likely for them to walk into social situations with what we call their hunting dogs, swords, and shields, things that they bring with them based on their temperament, the over-controlled client that we're talking about here, that uh, make it mm. difficult for people to want mm. to connect with them. And, and can I jump in there? Yeah. Because I think this is, this is something that um, I struggle with, just kind of like talking about going to parties. And I know that... Um, some of my OC colleagues have the same thing that if I go into a party and lots of people are talking in groups, I really struggle with walking up to either, you know, even if I know people a little bit and kind of like butting into the conversation. So when I walk into a party, I'm, I'm really quite anxious, whereas I know that Tom can just walk up to people and kind of like interrupt and start talking to them and then he might walk away again. And, you know, it's really interesting to see the differences in our behavior. And you asked about how um, it's affected as a, as a couple. Yeah. Um, it's been really helpful for me to see that there's a different way of being, you know, because I grew up in a family that was all OC. All of my family were OC. And that was kind of, I just thought that people were like that. And to see how different I can, I could, could be if I can kind of like get out of my OC way of being has been a, Huge awakening for me. And yet the struggles, you know, because I'm rule governed and I like things to be very tidy and uh, Tom's much less tidy than I am. You know, there's times where I've really got to um, look at what, what are my priorities? You know, is it more important that the room's tidy or is it more important that I get on with Tom? Um, oh, yeah, I mean, I think that it's impacted us in many different ways. One of the things we haven't talked about is in a radical openness is this concept of um, self-inquiry, which is a new way of thinking about mindfulness, and it comes from a, um, a tradition called Malamati Sufism. And um, it's it's a way of actually um, learning to create um, what we call a sense of healthy self-doubt, which uh, we believe is one of the secrets of, of, of healthy living as well. Being, um, to walk into situations and have the capacity to not immediately reject or try to regulate or defend against or deny or, you know, or accept or whatever, to actually have the willingness to take in feedback that you don't want to hear or you dislike um, for a temporary period of time and be willing to consider that perhaps your perspective is incorrect and you might need to learn because that's how you, the only way you grow is you have to encounter your personal unknown. So I guess for me personally, I think that self-inquiry has really enriched my my life, and I think it's enriched our mm -hmm. couples. Yeah, I, I think it helps us both um, recognize that our way of 
being, my personal way of being, isn't necessarily the right or the only way. Mm. And to accept um, to accept Tom's very different ways and to love him for him, not just to put up with them, but to actually <laughs> love him. I can remember um, talking to Leanna Clark once, who's um, a well-known researcher on personality disorders, and she talked about UCs as having tolerance for chaos. Meaning under control. Under control, UCs, yeah. having tolerance for chaos. And so it, that's really helped me. So when I walk into Tom's office, which, wow, you should see Tom's office. I don't know how he finds <laughs> it. chaotic. Anything, but he always seems to find it. And when I walk in, I have this urge to try to tidy it up or at least take some of the dirty glasses away, you know, so that I can wash them up. And then when I tell myself, you know, that he has greater tolerance for chaos than I do, then I can see that actually, you know, what he has is a strength and my rigid way of seeing it isn't necessarily the right way to be. So, so then it's, yeah. there's lots of things like that. There, there are. And I, and I do think I do anything to help you? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I was wondering the same thing. <laughs> I was going to say right now, which is um, because Erica brought up this idea of chaos and things, and I just want to make sure people recognize, though, that um, – Overcontrolled individuals doesn't mean all of them are very neat and clean and orderly. And that would be one thing that would confuse someone. For example, you can't go by how they dress. They might look very um, dramatic in their dress. And the reason they might dress that way is because they see themselves as separate or different. It's a social signal to society to stay back even, perhaps. Um, and, some, and if you think about obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, one of the criteria is hoarding and you know, it's and we used to do home visits for some of our OCPD clients, and and their houses are absolutely a cluttered mess because they're saving. They're over control is out of control. They're saving everything for the future. That's what hoarding is. It's saving something just instead in of case. just in case you might need it. You know, uh, saving for the rainy day, um, which is a really a great adaptive thing for our species to have developed. But you can have too much of it, and then that type of thing. So it's you know. It's really interesting that um, it's starting to come out, though, you know, the data is very compelling about this, these two different personality styles. And what's nice is we think we might have figured out a way to help people with it. So, good. That's remarkable. Yeah. So, let's talk a little bit about the application with eating disorders as well. Yeah. Um, I, can, I can already think through kind of how the hoarding or the way that you just described is sort of like messiness might actually going to come out with um, clients that are really, really struggling with eating disorders and maybe have gotten to a place where, indeed, their their over-control has gotten out of hand a little bit. Um, but kind of broadly, how would RODBT work for a client with an eating disorder? How does this all play out? Okay. Well, I mean, basically, we start with the premise, and it's based on the research data, which shows that what's interesting is over-control and, and the same goes for under control, these personality styles, they can, you can start to see them in kids as young as four years old. Um, there's a really famous experiment that's been done a lot. It's called the marshmallow experiment where you give a kid, you go into a room and, and you say to a little child or five years old and say, I'm going to give you a marshmallow and if you don't eat it, uh, I'm going to have to leave here for a minute. But if you don't eat it and I come back and, and you haven't eaten it, you're going to get another one. You'll get an extra one. So meaning if you can delay gratification, if you can inhibit um, you know, the desire to want to eat the marshmallow right then. And it, it turns out right around then, about age four or five, you can, there's really clear differences between kids you can see. And we, we know that inhibitory control is a temperament. It's part. There's a part of your brain that's developed by that to do that. And so um, I guess when it comes to uh, 
eating disorders, then like anorexia would be what we'd call as a um, a classic overcontrolled type of uh, personality style. At least um, that's what the data shows. Um, <clears throat> overcontrol starts before they have the eating disorder problem. And if you think about restricted eating, that takes a lot of inhibitory capacities. It's a lot of self-control to not eat when your your body is screaming for food, you might say. And so um, one of the things that we're able to do is is recognize that right away, and the clients get it. So when we talk to the over-controlled anorexic, say, for example, and talk about, you know, were they perfectionistic? Were they shy or timid? Did they kind of, you know, do they tend to be rule-governed and, and um, you know, maybe not express a lot of emotion, that type of thing, perhaps be conscientious and constrained and, and, and work hard, things like that. They'll talk, uh, they'll really identify very readily with that early, and, and that's what we've shown in our data as well. Um, I've got something else. Which, yeah, sure. Something else which doesn't get talked about as openly quite so often, but um, over-control people get a lot of um, satisfaction. Maybe their reward comes more from assisting at something, persevering at something, and being able to kind of like acknowledge that they've done really well at something. Um, and Tom uses an example often that overcontrols might not get so excited if they win the lottery because it was kind of like chance, you know. But if they've had to run a marathon and they've had to train, you know, like for six months beforehand and they've got up at four o'clock in the morning every morning to go training, then that's kind of where they get their reward from. So we also think that there's um, a part of the reward system that can be um, brought into play by the not eating because they can develop a real sense of pride, um, as well as this kind of like a perverse reward from not eating. So something that doesn't get talked about very often, but I do think it's a very important part of the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess, I guess what we're saying is that, um, big thing with RODBT is that we don't really focus on the food or, or that type of thing. We consider that to be, you know, kind of a side effect of over-controlled coping. And we really talk more about uh, where does a client want to go in life? How do they want to live? And we talk a lot about social signaling because we're actually the first treatment in the world to ever target social signaling because, we, as I mentioned before, because of the temperament issues they have, you know, for example, if you get threatened, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where threatened or anxious, you're, you know, what happens is you're, you're actually your face, it gets hard to actually express your emotions very um, easily, especially friendly pro-social emotions if you're threatened. So, for example, and I think we all have had this experience, you're feeling um, anxious or really upset about something, and you're, you're trying to be friendly to someone, but you know the smile's phony and fake. So you're not, you actually can sense it. And the thing is, people read that as well. So the data is clear. So the over-control client has kind of a, um, you know, kind of a, the struggle for them is that they've got a temperament that they were born with that's different than others. And that starts to emerge in young childhood, and then there are attempts to try to cope with it by, you know, um, avoiding risk or inhibiting their emotions, masking feelings. Because if you mask your feelings, then people won't find you to be out of control. You know, they're, they're basically they want to be in control at all times. Often that's what their culture and my, their family sometimes teaches them that as well. Um, so you know, you do those things. And then, or, or you, you know, you, you you don't get close to people because if you getting close to another person requires you to reveal vulnerability, 
And so, um, and if you, but if you reveal vulnerability, that means you might be doing something wrong. So avoid appearing um, like they made a mistake or those kind of things. Again, if you think of them as often having kind of a perfectionistic way of living, then you can start to see why they might start to behave in these ways. And the problem, unfortunately, is it, it sets up conditions where people don't really want to hang out with them so much. They, they, inside, they feel like people don't like them. They feel isolated. They feel, um, you know, they're, they're often described as shy or timid kids when they were young and, and that type of thing. And um, so the way of protecting themselves or, or controlling their emotions internally functions as a powerful social signal that you might say isolates them from other people because people find it off-putting when a person's not being genuine in how they're expressing or not really revealing much vulnerability because that's how you get to know someone, you know. It's like I always say, if you think about your friends, who do you, what, do you, what do you like about them? You know, is it because they just got back from Hawaii and they've got a nice tan and they're buying their third boat and getting their third PhD? You know, yeah, of course you like them for that. But I think you probably like them because they also told you things about themselves that they're not always proud about or they've struggled with, they worry about. And that's what we mean by intimacy. It's not just the good things to find out about someone. It's also the things that a person might struggle with. And, and why is that important to reveal to someone? Well, it sends a powerful social signal. It says two things. One, I trust you because we don't reveal vulnerability to someone we don't trust. And two, um, that you and I are the same because we all know that we've made mistakes in life and that we all could do better and that we're fallible. So it kind of does, it's a very powerful thing. And once what we do is help our clients really learn the skills to be able to socially connect again, to get back in the tribe, you might say. Yeah. So let's focus on food-related behaviors, although we don't ignore it. Um, more focus on social signaling and social connectedness, you might say. One of the things that I've noticed with working with eating disorder clients is that um, it feels like oftentimes the the focus or the obsession with food or body becomes kind of the number one number one thing in their lives. So maybe a leaning toward that because of their overcontrolled temperament has sort of taken the place of of many other desires. Um I I feel curious what you guys would say about that in terms of how to use self-inquiry around that, how to how would a client learn to connect um and maybe reveal deeper things when they might be really hyper-focused temperamentally on on food or body. Yeah, we see that, of course, and um, we don't think about it a whole lot. We all, we start really back with the client. Where do you want to be? How, what kind of life do you want to live? It's your life. It's your choice. And I um, think very early on when we talk about goals and values, yeah. which we do in the first couple of sessions, um, mm-hmm. we always make sure that we have goals and values that aren't just to do with the body or what you look like and that there are some goals and values that are to do with relationships. Yeah. Um, and I think that, well, that's really important because then throughout treatment, what we do is keep referring back to those goals and values, um, which is what provides the incentive for the client to start to do to, to think about things differently. Now, so I guess what I'm saying there, I don't know, uh, you know, I hadn't thought about this a whole lot right now, but something like um, I'm kind of bored by it a bit. It's not, well, it's the, the client's. You know, choice. It's their life. If they want to think about their body a lot, how about that? My question to them would be something like, "Are you happy? Do you have a good time doing it? To get you where you want to be in life? All those kind of things." And then, but really, I want to say to them, you know, you have anyone that actually 
don't you give a damn about and gives a damn about you? Do you have anyone that like that we might say is a genuine friend? These are the kind of things we start to then move toward. So I don't know if I'm exactly getting at your question, but those are a couple of thoughts I have about it. I think yeah. you are getting yeah, at it. It's I, a, I, can I just, just jump in there about the self-inquiry? Because I think that sometimes people think that self-inquiry should be about like the big things, you know, the big problems that we have. Um, and my personal experience is that my self-inquiry is most useful to me when it comes up around the little things, but it's the little things that come up a lot. You know, why is it that when Tom says this, I get upset? Or why is it when I come across that, that I get upset? You know, the things that come up regularly that, that create some energy in me, um, those are the places that I can really grow because those are the patterns, my coping patterns, that are maybe getting me stuck. Whereas, um, I know like a huge, big, yeah. And I guess just to add on what Erica's saying, and then we should, you know, go elsewhere, I guess. But when she used the word why, she, I think that we wouldn't use the word why exactly in a self-inquiry practice because that implies that we're looking for a cause. Mm. But what we would say is, is there something here for me to learn, a more open kind of minded, yeah. that kind of, a you know, it's a broad question that you might, we teach our clients to learn to begin to ask themselves when they get something they don't like or in a novel situation, for example, or something like that, mm -hmm. and, um, and, 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 and that type of thing, and then see what emerges. There's a whole way we teach it um, to the clients. So um, I don't know, if we're, are we, are we kind of hitting the mark for you guys with that, or, or is there something else you want yeah. to know about? Yeah, I think so. It's, I was laughing um, earlier because it's, I could tell you were, I, I was aware of imagining that you're bored answering that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh gosh! Yeah. And it's what we get asked all Like I know, <laughs> I know. So, but one thing I do want to touch on because it is so different um, in RODBT versus treatment as usual in eating disorders is kind of um, and something we've been changing dramatically at Opal um, is how we respond to um, clients who are refusing to eat food when they're in treatment. And um, yeah. I wonder, could you share some of your thoughts on that? So if a client is saying, I can't do it, I just can't do it. I can't eat this, this food you've put before what can't me. can't you do? Can't eat what? <laughs> you what? can't eat food the, in front of you? Yeah, the food in front of me. You literally can't pick up, you can't pick up that fork and can't do that, huh? Well, I could. I'm, I'm just so anxious. I'm so, I, I can't do it. I'm so anxious about it. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I guess you could just see by that little thing I did there. I mean, the, the, it's part of, I guess, the way we think about it is, I mean, it's just true for all of us. I think we all have a story about ourselves, about the world and how it works. And it's always evolving, of course. But but often our story about the world and ourselves keeps us stuck, too, in the places that we, sometimes not places that are healthy for us. And so part of our work with a, a client like that would be, Helping them recognize that it's their choice. No one's forcing them not to eat. They're making a decision to not pick up that. So, and that it is true, anxiety occurs. But yet, you know, from an RO perspective, you know, um, how about that? Isn't that amazing? Look at that anxiety. Um, you know, we, we really think that anxiety and emotions are part of life. I've had plenty of emotion today. I don't know about you guys, but there's obstacles all the time, all kinds of things going on in the world with things. Um, and so instead of kind of worrying about having to feel good before I can live well, we actually try to help a client recognize that you can 
you can social signal according to your values. You can live according to your values. And we think that if you get connected, the data is clear on this. If people that are connected with at least one other person, they feel naturally calmer and they feel less anxious because they know someone has their back. They know that if they're in trouble, they've got someone they could contact who would be there to help them and, and be willing to make self-sacrifices for their benefit without always expecting something in return. So, you know, our focus is getting, if you get in tribe, if you get to feel connected and, and something changes and the food just becomes less salient. And that's what our clients tell us. They just seem to, it just doesn't seem as important once they start to figure out finally how to get closer to other people. And that's, you know, so that's kind of what we see happening. It does make sense. It's, it, feels inspiring in so many ways to be thinking of how we just take food out of the equation. I think that's hard for me in some ways because I'm like, oh, there's a lot of information there. So for the purpose of self-inquiry, it seems great. Um, but then on the other hand, too, I love that you guys are saying, like, can we talk about something else, too? <laughs> can we talk yeah, about something else? Yeah. This is funny because it goes. there's a history with this whole way of doing things. You know, 10 years ago, I was asked to go to the Halden unit, which is an anorexic unit in the U.K., and that's where we did our first trial um, with uh, RODBT with anorexia adults. And one of the things, I, I used to go in on the unit and hang out a lot and spend time with the staff and the patients and things. And, and during one of the consultation team meetings, uh, someone was talking about a client, and all they were talking about, you know, was – food and, and those kind of things and how the client was cutting a pea up into 27 different pieces and, or something like that. Um, and I just sort of made a suggestion. This is very early days for us. And I just said to the therapist, well, next session, why don't you go in and just tell the client, you're not going to talk about food at all this time or anything like that and just see what happens. And what happened is the client's reported they got highly anxious. They didn't, they actually found talking about, this is what they, they reported us. They found talking about food or, or restricting behavior or calorie intake or uh, exercise and things of that nature to actually be kind of um, hmm, soothing, you might say, comfortable. Um, it gave them a sense of identity and purpose, gave them a, and that type of thing. And then as soon as we took that away, at least you might say for a session, all of a sudden they were faced with the fact that they have, they're much more than just their eating disorder. They're not just their eating disorder. And that's what we try to help the client recognize. And then they start to, that's when they first start to make the step. It's really nice to see. Yeah. I find myself um, like still really curious about, um, let's see, just what social signaling can do for this. Um, especially, I don't know, we've talked a lot about, um, overly agreeable and overly disagreeable clients at Opal. I'm not sure we've talked about it a ton on the podcast, um, but when we're, we're talking about social signaling and open expression of emotion, I think oftentimes I've heard clients assume that they're being so, I mean, they're, they're talking about stuff already. They're feeling warm. They're feeling connected. They're feeling all these things, um, or at least trying to. They're acting like that, but not internally. Um, they're not actually experiencing closeness because maybe they're avoiding conflict, for instance. Um, can you talk a little bit more about kind of how these two subtypes would be struggling to express themselves um, and and how one would go about that, changing that? Um, well, maybe I can um, start because I lean towards overly disagreeable 
although I don't have an eating disorder, I love my food. <laughs> um, I can certainly talk about uh, what my struggle is as an overly disagreeable. So um, uh, I I can look like a real toffee. I'm I'm quite because of my social obligation. I'm usually quite polite and nice and chatty. So um, it's when I start to get pushed or I'm faced with something that I don't like that my automatic reaction is to fight. So I can get disagreeable. I can get um, tough. I don't get loudly angry. I get cold and angry. Um, and if it starts to heat up, then I walk away. I don't like conflict. I hate to admit that I don't like conflict because I like to think that I can handle it because I'm a toughie. Um, but I really don't like it at all. It upsets me a lot. And so I walk away. And I walk away uh, from relationships. I used to walk away from relationships where there was a lot of conflict. I'm learning now to hang in there. And interestingly, I can't ever remember my mom showing any anger ever. So I don't think that I ever learned how to express it in a reasonable way. Or I don't think I ever learned anything about it at all. So in terms of um, an overly disagreeable, um, what I need to learn to do is to be more vulnerable, is to show my soft belly. Because I'm a, actually, I'm a real marshmallow inside. I'm a real soft. <laughs> and I think that my tough exterior is to protect some, like my real soft underbelly. And what I have to learn to do is to show people that. It's funny, as I'm talking now, I can, I can just feel some tears in my eyes as if, you know, I'm saying something tough to say this, but it's an important thing for me to say that I need to show people that, you know, that I'm, that I'm soft, that I'm vulnerable. Um, and it's getting easier for me to do because I've, you know, I've been working with Tom a long time and he's really helped me. Yeah. So the overly disagreeable subtype as far as social signaling is because they, both subtypes, both all over-controlled individuals want to be seen as competent. Um, mm -hmm. but the overly disagreeable wants to seem as competent and not a wishy-washy or weak, you might say. Yeah. So they're more likely to signal with a flat face. They're less likely to show emotion, especially under stress. They're less likely to do conspicuous cooperative signaling, like head nods mm -hmm. or smiling, those kinds of things, especially under stress again. Mm -hmm. Whereas the overly agreeable subtype also wants to be seen as competent, but also socially desirable. So... They, too, will walk away from relationships, but they'll do it in a way that no one ever knows they're actually walking away. It's something like, oh, oh don't worry, I'll get back with you, I'll call you, and then they never do, things like this. So, you know, it's a, the subtypes and their signaling is different. The overly um, agreeable subtype is likely to be doing excessive cooperative pro-social signaling that actually comes off in a phony way. They'll have a, a sing-song voice, they'll... And, and the problem is that it's fine to be, you know, head nodding and, and smiling a lot. But when it's done at a time when you're talking about, like, say, well, I just, you know, and I just found out that my husband's having an affair, you know, and you're they're smiling about it. And, and he, you know, I burnt the house down. How's your day going? Oh, so thing. unsettling. Um, it's just... Uh, <laughs> It just doesn't work either way, and and so both both subtypes have different ways of social signaling that can get them in trouble with people wanting to connect with them. And the thing is, people are polite. We're a kind species, so most of the time, the only time you're ever going to get feedback about your interpersonal social signaling will be from your spouse or a very close friend <laughs> or a therapist. That's about it. Yeah, I was just thinking, one of the things that you asked earlier on about what's it like being, you know, 
using RO in our in our relationship. Um, and Tom sees my flat face before I realize that my face has gone flat. And so he'll say, what's the matter? And I'll say nothing. And he'll say, well, your face has gone flat. And I think, oh, shit, not again. <laughs> 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 really tough. <laughs> so funny it's so funny i mean i we obviously can't see you since you two are on the phone um but even Uh as you were speaking and kind of putting on these overly disagreeable and overly agreeable um kind of personas the whole room in here just kind of like reacted our own our own bodies really responded to that i found myself um particularly cringing with the overly agreeable like Oh, I don't know what this all means. You know, how do I actually know this? And I noticed, I noticed the when you were describing overly agreeable. I've been looking at Carter and like nodding and smiling this whole (laughs) this whole time, and looking over at Kara and Julie and smiling and going. And so I I cut that out for a minute. (laughs) Yeah, and that fact, there's one of the skills we teach has really applicability to the different subtypes and. Um, it has to do with the, what's called um, indirect social signaling. So the thing about uh, over-controlled individuals, they are, of course, are social signaling. We all are. Social signal is any behavior you do in front of another person, you know, even if it's not intentional as a social signal. So if you yawn in front of another person and you don't intend to give them a message about anything like they're boring or anything, but the other person... The brain is hardwired to um, take any behavior that they experience with when they're around another human as a signal of whether of social inclusion or not. Because remember, being in a tribe was essential for our primordial ancestors, so our brain still responds just like it did back in the early days. And so we take any signal that comes from another person that's not conspicuously clear as a genuine signal of friendliness. And we can tell whether a, fo- a smile is phony or fake, all kinds of things. We're good at reading this at an unconscious level, and that's what the data shows. So, you know, Can I just so, finish up your sentence then? Yeah, so yeah. so if, a, if a signal isn't conspicuously pro-social and genuine, then we read it as a, um, a negative or... It's a non-engagement signal. Or, or actually uh, could be like a disapproval signal. So a flat face might not have any... Um, uh, emotion, intention behind it as a negative one, but another person might read it as a negative um, thing. Yeah, because there's no deliberate pro-social it's, stuff it's, there. It's really funny because you look at Hollywood and they figured this out because the villains that they use in movies often have a flat face. That's what makes them so scary because there's this conspicuous absence of pro-social signaling in a situation that calls for it, and those kind of things. Um, but what you know, what I was going to say is that there's two different types of signaling. There's one that we see with the overly disagreeable more often. It's called a pushback type of um, behavior that is a social signal, and it's used as a way to, um, you know, I guess essentially you say to to block feedback you don't want to hear, or to um, block requests to join in the community or to participate in a, in your tribe. And um, let's have Erica demonstrate this. Let's see if this will work. Um, Erica, could you show everyone right now what a pushback would look like? What do you mean show? We're on the telephone. Oh, could you demonstrate, though, just through words then? 
uh, what a pushback might look like. Well, what do you want me to do that for? Well, because you often help me out with things like this. It'd be really helpful if you could show a pushback. Do you mind doing it? Well, I think that that's quite a big problem with this. I don't really don't understand why you want me to do this right now. Oh, well, <laughs> uh, okay, but, but you usually help me out with things. I mean, I don't know what's going on. I think you're the professor here. I think that you can kind of sort this out without me, don't you? Okay, so that's called a pushback. <laughs> a pushback. I'm really good at those. You're really, really good, good at those, yeah. Yeah. those most. You're yeah. really good. So, you know, in that example, you could see what happened is what makes indirect social signaling, which is the way uh, this, the style of social signaling an over-controlled person has, is that it has plausible deniability. So I could say to this person, you know, Eric, I could say, you know, you seem like you're angry or whatever. And what, she could no, say, I'm no, not I'm angry. not angry. Tell me what I think. That's yeah. And so, but if you, you notice in this case, actually she's in a tribe that actually it's part of her job to help me out. And so here it is, it's odd. But notice it's got that plausible deniability. First thing she does is I say, could you do this? And she says, why do you want me to do that? So instead of, she puts it back on me. And it's just an example of that. Um, how indirect social signaling really impacts other people, but it allows the person to not take responsibility for the decisions or choices they make or, or those types of things, or for the fact that they're impacting other people. Now, the other type is called a don't hurt me response, and it's more likely to occur in the overly agreeable subtype. And Erica, could you demonstrate for us what an, um, an overly uh, a, a don't hurt me response might look like? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. But, you know, I think we're probably running out of time now. So I think, you know, maybe we should just kind of like move. Yeah, but I think it'd be really, we have some time, I think. It'd be really helpful for people to see the don't hurt me. Do you mind oh, doing that? Tom, you know, you, I've told you this before. If you really like me, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't ask me to do these kind of things. Oh, I know, but, you know, you're here to help me out on this call today. And I, I would I'm, think that. I'm getting a headache now, Tom. This is just so hard. Okay, so that's called a don't hurt me response. And Very it's familiar. Kind of, it's a kind of behavior that's learned, and it, what it does is that both of these behaviors function to block, you know, joining something. So I, in this case, I asked her to help me out with something, and it actually, though, basically puts the problem back on me because it basically is saying there again, you know, if I was a nice person, don't I see I'm not a caring? And so therapists or everybody kind of often has a tendency to to soothe the person, which actually reinforces it and, and, and take the heat off them. So we, we, teach the ther we teach the clients about all this. So we teach them everything about social signaling. And um, it's kind of cool because um, they, they like it. They like it, hard to do again. <laughs> <laughs> they like it too. They like, they've known they've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> it's really asking them to step up to the plate and be responsible for what they're really feeling, which I don't know. I was, yeah. I've been yeah. thinking, honestly, a lot about um, – I've been thinking about a conflict I had with my partner uh, last weekend, actually, when we've been talking about this, because um, maybe it's because you said that you had initially started with couples work. <laughs> um, but just noticing like, wow, if you are kind of trying to inhibit your emotions so much and then you start leaning in the category of, oh, I can't do that or, oh, I'm feeling, you know, these pushbacks and don't hurt me. Um they really can get in the way of mutuality in a relationship. And mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I know that. Yeah. I've been thinking of that cognitively for a while, but it can still happen. And the emphasis on actually going out of your way to out yourself or to share what's happening for you before you get to the point of that can really allow two people to stay on the same playing field. Um, and the direct communication, pursuing direct communication can clearly increase intimacy so that you're not just, I don't know, 
enabling someone constantly or yeah. walking on eggshells. And, and from a selfish point of view, you're more likely to get what you want because you're actually being direct about what it is that you want or what it is that you're unhappy with. Because right. the indirect stuff leaves the other person guessing what the problem is and they can't help you solve it if they don't know what it is. So Might as well come out with it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we are just about at time, but... Um, were there any final questions from from Lexi or anything? well I the one question that's lingering um, for me is around um, uh, over controlled temperament and bulimia and binging and purging and it yeah. seems like there's there's an assumption that you you can't be over controlled in your temperament and have binging and purging symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on that, Tom and Eric. Yeah, I think that broadly speaking, I mean, I mean, I'm kind of as a scientist, I'm very cautious about making statements that I haven't, you know, I, that that need more research. And and I think you know, I'm working with Modley right now, which does it's in London. It's a it's an eating disorder center that we're doing research with on this. And we believe it's possible that it's you know there may be individuals. You can learn anything, by the way. So binge purge typically is. The research links it with, you know, poor persistence and poor planning and poor inhibitory control and impulsiveness and things like this. However, you know, I'm working with um, with the population for a while. You know, many have noted that it seems that there's some individuals that might, um, you know, lean toward over control that develop this um, kind of binge purge way of behaving. And so we're not, we're still trying to sort it out a bit. One thought we have is that it's like anything in life. There's so much, you know, you only have so much self-control and at some point everybody's got a breaking point. So if you're, you know, if you're really hungry and you're starving yourself, you're inhibiting, inhibiting, restricting, say you're an anorexic and then um, you meet at some point you, you get, you know, you decide to eat and then you would be highly reinforcing at that point. There's a part of the brain that's associated with laying down um, learning and, and that type of thing that's reward learning. And one, um, you're like really thirsty, say you're in the desert and, and, you, and you haven't had water for a long time, you drink water, it's going to be highly associated with um, uh, hedonic value and, 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 and learning. So I think there's lots of ways things like that could happen. I think that this is an exciting time for us to start to look at mm -hmm. those kind of constructs. And I know yeah. people are. I, I think another way, another thing that's important as well is to, um, when somebody says they binge, is to actually dig deep to find out, you know, how much did they really binge? Because I know that, for example, I love chocolate, but I can only eat three or four pieces of chocolate. And to me, a binge would be eating six pieces of chocolate. To Tom, binging would be eating three bars of chocolate. You know, And I could never eat three bars of chocolate. So I think you know the, what they report. It's really important to dig down into it to find out what it. Yeah. You know, how much? What? How much did they actually? Binge? And how much did they plan it? How much was yeah. it based on mood dependency, or did uh -huh. they plan it ahead and things like that? Because it'll give you a sense. It's the same thing with um, self-injury and those kind of things, because it occurs as well with over-controlled. Mm -hmm. It's often planned and done privately and this kind yeah. of stuff. So. But I know you thought about this, Lexi. I'm interested to hear your thoughts, because I know you've thought about this a lot. Yeah, I, I have thought about it. And I, I love the idea of thinking about eating disorders as either under-controlled versus over-controlled eating disorders, because the current diagnostic system doesn't speak to over control which is such over control and under control so yeah i we see so much you know subjective binging and planned planned purges and purges to kind of correct mistakes of eating 
that kind mm. of thing. So we're really used to seeing that around Opal in our in our clients. Yeah. 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 Well, one of the things that um, uh, Ruli and I are just trying to set up now is um, a clinician-based or a clinic-based research group. So hopefully we're going to be in touch with you in the future to help you start to collect data on this kind of stuff because it's going to be really important that we you know, have some empirical evidence around it too. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us and talking us talking to us about RO. Such been, a treat, Tom and Erica. Yeah. And so great that, Erica, you were able to join us. Well, thanks for the invitation. Did we talk too much? I feel as though we've done lots of talking. <laughs> no, it's been fine. It's yeah. been great to learn so much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate it. It's been fun. It's been enjoyable yeah. talking to you uh, guys. Oh, good. So, and it's our dinner time now. Oh, yeah. okay. what are you going to have? Anything yeah, good? It's almost 7 o'clock in the evening. Oh, funny. But like a good OC, guess what I did this afternoon? I prepared our dinner first. I <laughs> do. <laughs> I took a nap. Thanks again to Tom and Erica for joining us at this special time for RODBT. And thank you for listening. If you were intrigued by anything you heard, make sure to check out previous episodes on RO and its application in eating disorders, sport, and in relationship. We even have a heartfelt episode talking about forgiveness as it's seen through an RODBT lens. So if you're looking to get deeper into RO, check that out. Also, go ahead and subscribe to The Appetite on iTunes so you can be notified when our next episode comes out. And if you want to stay in touch with us, find us at opalfoodandbody.com or follow Opal on Facebook and Twitter. We would love to talk to you via email as well. So send any questions or comments at theappetite at opalfoodandbody.com. Thank you to Cloud Studios and to Jack Straw Cultural Center for the use of their beautiful recording studios and for sound engineering. Thank you to Aaron Davidson for the Appetite's signature music and to Sarah Taylor for production assistance and editing. Talk to you guys next time. Thank you.